This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Horgan Effect. This is a government that is popular. There's no question about it. A new poll shows the challenge for opposition parties leading up to October 24th. The secrets of Smugglers in. If you charge money, the law says no. How the American operator is alleged to have helped migrants sneak into Canada. Get out of and Strathcona residents rise up against violence and disorder. Nothing's been done, so we wanted to come together and get some attention. What they really want for the people living in the latest tent city. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking news as the provincial election campaign starts to pick up steam. Global News has learned lawyers representing the NDP are calling for Elections BC to begin an urgent investigation into possible cases of voter fraud. Richard Zussman is live in Victoria right now with the details on this. Richard, the allegations involve the BC Liberals. What are they accused of here? They are being accused in this letter here, Chris, sent from lawyers representing the NDP of potential uh, voter fraud when it comes to ordering mail-in ballots. So what this letter details are allegations being brought forward and evidence of a chat, an online app chat that shows that uh, members of Gary Thin's campaign and Surrey Fleetwood were asking for people's personal information, name, email, phone number, all in an attempt to request mail-in ballots for the upcoming election. The chat also asks for personal information, either a driver's license or a social insurance license number. We have also now been told that Elections BC has started to look into these allegations and so far they have not found any wrongdoing. Let me read to you a statement that was sent uh, from Elections BC. This is part of that statement. We have contacted Gary Thin's campaign and the BC Liberal Party who have denied the allegations and stated that no voter information was received and no requests for vote-by-mail packages were made on behalf of voters. But Elections BC also saying they take these sort of allegations very seriously. One of the reasons why this is so crucial is there have been more than 400,000 mail-in ballots requested due to COVID-19. And the Liberals have said that they have sent a note to all of their campaigns reminding them that individuals must order their own mail-in ballots. Sophie, Chris, back to you guys. All right, Richard, thanks very much. Now, at the same time, a new poll indicates if the provincial election were held today, the NDP would return to power with a comfortable majority. The results certainly encouraging for the NDP, but the poll also finds a little silver lining for the Liberals and Greens. 
It looks like British Columbians want NDP leader John Horgan to keep his job. You can certainly see why they called the election. They're miles ahead in terms of vote. Uh, they're miles ahead in terms of leadership. A new Ipsos poll done for Global News finds 51% of decided voters support the NDP, 33% support the B.C. Liberals, and 12% the Greens, with 31% of voters still undecided. We know that elections in B.C. typically get a lot closer as they get to Election Day. The lead indicating the NDP are on their way to the majority government they desperately covet. I know that polls come and polls go. Uh, there'll probably be another one next week and one the week after that. I'm focused on engaging with people. As for the top issue in the campaign, 30% of voters say it's COVID-19 and the recovery from the pandemic. As to which leader is best suited to lead that recovery, 45% of British Columbians said NDP leader John Horgan, 14% with Andrew Wilkinson, and 7% said Sonia Furstenau. Well, I'm humbled by uh, those uh, numbers, but I also understand that uh, you have to earn support every day. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson on Vancouver Island Tuesday still struggling to connect with voters. Well, I suspect that I've only met about 14% of British Columbians, so we're working on that right now. The poll does come before the reaction to the Liberals scrapping the PST for a year can set in. The NDP leading in every region with a 23-point lead in Metro Vancouver, 26-point lead on Vancouver Island, and a 5-point lead in the Southern Interior and the North. Green Party leader Sonia Firstno campaigning in Squamish today and riding the party finished second in the last election. The question is whether she should solely be focused on Vancouver Island where the party won three seats in 2017, but is now sitting third. We are focusing on a province-wide campaign because we are offering solutions to every single community and every person in B.C. But the old adage still holds true. The only poll that really matters is the one on Election Day. Richard Zosman, Global News, Victoria. Well, even so, we'll continue to dissect this one. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the issues and who polling shows is the best candidate for premier, at least uh, according to the respondents. Keith? Yeah, you know, we don't vote for a premier unless that premier li lives in your riding, wants to be your MLA. You vote for the local candidate. But I think the question on many people's minds is the premier. Who is going to be the premier coming out of this election? It's revealing again that John Horgan is by far the choice for British Columbians. Take a look at this. He's a very comfortable lead. 44% think he would make the best premier. Just 14% for Andrew Wilkinson and just 6% for Sonia. First of all, I think obviously Horgan has a much bigger profile than the other two, which is one big reason why his numbers are so high. But I think this poll illustrates, uh, uh, Sophie, that for many people, this is a referendum on the government and its handling of the pandemic and it, you know, a question of leadership. And clearly right now, John Horgan, as a leadership candidate, has the backing of a significant amount of people. And if that election was held today, Richard's right, and so are you, we'd have a majority NDP government. The Liberals would be lucky to get 25 seats if that's the type of vote split. But as we've seen, things can change in B.C. and we still have several weeks to go. Yeah. Keith, thank you. Burnaby RCMP are hoping you can help identify three suspects in a possible hate crime over the weekend in the Metro Town area. Grace Key is live in Burnaby with more on what happened and why Grace RCMP feel the victim was targeted because of his race. 
Well, the incident unfolded just behind me here, and the victim, an Asian man, is alleging that racial slurs were made against him in what's being described as an unprovoked attack. So it all unfolded just on Saturday afternoon about 4.15 near the Metrotown Skytrain station. The victim says the suspect, dressed in yellow, along with two other people, began shouting remarks such as, go back to your country. The suspect is then alleged to have poured coffee over the victim's head. And the fear is this had the potential to be much worse. You can see from the photo we've provided uh, what appears to be a dagger in the back pocket of the, uh, of the suspect. Uh, we don't know for sure what it is. Uh, the victim stated that he at no time uh, was there any gesture towards the dagger or what appears to be a pocket knife in the front pocket. Uh, that wasn't part of the threats. However, uh, you can imagine how this individual would feel, uh, you know, being yelled at, having racial slurs uh, directed at him and, uh, and seeing this. So it was very frightening and, and uh, we take that very seriously. So luckily no one was hurt. The suspects are being described as a Caucasian man in his 40s, a woman in her 30s with a blonde ponytail, and then another man, no age description there. But certainly if you witnessed anything, you're being asked to call Burnaby RCMP. Chris? Grace Key and Burnaby, thanks Grace. Another protest today at the site of the tent city in Vancouver's Strathcona Park, but it wasn't the people living in the camp. Residents of homes around the park took to the streets, demanding all levels of government do something about the crisis that has landed in their neighborhood. Nadia Stewart reports. Residents in Vancouver's Strathcona neighborhood say they are fed up with government inaction. Nothing's been done, so we wanted to come together and get some attention. For the last three months, a tent city has been growing inside Strathcona Park. And these rallying residents say little is being done to address their need for housing. As I've started to talk and find out people's stories, uh, we're all just a couple steps away from being somebody that we're looking out and watching in a tent. We need to have the parks board come in and take a stand um, the way that they served injunction on Oppenheimer. We want that done here, but we don't want them just removed and pushed and swept under the rug somewhere else. We want some long-term solution. But for those who call this tent city home... Right here, this is how you Canada that, right? The homeowner's chance of housing for all is not one they immediately echo. A lot of the, the faces I see here haven't ever spoken out about homelessness, so it does kind of uh, highlight that until it infringes onto someone's backyard. Uh, it's not necessarily a concern about homelessness so much as it is a concern about having one's immediate life disrupted. Shame on Canada! Vancouver police arrested camp resident Chrissy Brett. They said it was not related to her peaceful protest, but because she had an outstanding warrant. There are more tents up in Strathcona Park now than there were in June when the camp was first erected. But there are still few answers around what will be done and when. Nadia Stork, Global News. Turning to COVID-19 in our province now, and here's a look at today's numbers. We have 105 new cases, bringing our total to 9,013. Sadly, one more person has died, bringing the provincial death toll to 234. 69 people are in hospital, 20 of those patients in ICU. 7,485 people are considered recovered, 
leaving us with 1,268 active cases and just over 3,000 people currently in isolation. It was a change put in place to help maintain physical distancing. But as of tomorrow, BC Ferries passengers parked on the lower deck will no longer be able to stay in their vehicles for their crossing. Transport Canada says it's a safety issue and is refusing to budge despite pressure from the BC government, Ferry Workers Union and many British Columbians. Brad McLeod reports. I typically stay on the lower deck. I think it's people's choice should be. Yeah, a lot of people definitely stay in their car more than I think is normal. For the last six months, many have opted to stay in their cars on the lowest enclosed decks of BC Ferries, but that changes Wednesday. If the powers that be have decided it's a good thing, well then I guess it's a good thing. You gotta go up to the top decks. Mingling with other people, doesn't make sense. So why is Transport Canada reverting back to banning travel on enclosed decks? even though COVID is still around. Now, six months since the onset of COVID-19, we have learned more on how to protect ourselves and travel safely. However, the marine safety risk to passengers in enclosed decks remains very real. This is going to frustrate a lot of British Columbians. I'm disappointed the federal government didn't see their way to allow an exemption for a short period of time. Customers will still be able to stay in, the, uh, in their vehicles on the upper or open car decks. You may experience something new at BC Ferries Terminal, more security. They're not here necessarily to enforce, but to advise people that they need to wear a mask everywhere. We will have extra security presence on board. If we need to uh, have a discussion with a customer, we can certainly do that. And it's the staff who will bear the brunt of this change. Threats, uh, wishes of illness and disease on, on our employees. The union hopes Transport Canada reconsiders the move. During the summer, even with, with the pandemic, we had fairly high numbers and allowing a large number of passengers to stay below, stay on their decks, stay away from, from possible exposure was, was really quite a successful initiative and a joint plea to prevent potential abuse. Please respect our staff. They're just doing their jobs by asking customers to comply with the regulation. We're just going to echo uh, Bonnie Henry. Be kind, be calm, be safe, and we'll get you where you need to go. Brad McLeod, Global News, Swartz Bay. A ransomware attack hits local health clinics. How personal information for thousands of patients was compromised and what the clinics were forced to do to get it all back in just over a minute. Debate night in the USA. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump in a critical battle before the November election. That's coming up on the News Hour. Also, new fast-moving fires destroy parts of California wine country. How soon that smoke will show up here, coming up later. Right now, though, cybersecurity experts say a major new security breach in the healthcare sector is a lesson for everyone. The Medicis Group says the personal information of 60,000 Canadians was compromised by a ransomware demand. Aaron MacArthur reports on what security experts say companies need to do to protect themselves. Another ransomware attack against a Canadian company. Cybercriminals taking advantage of the pandemic, ramping up the volume of attacks. More people working from home means more access points for bad guys to hack into systems. Depending on who you talk to in the industry, there's quotes out there from 200% up to 800% increase. The latest company to be hit, Medicis. The attack happened at the end of August. Police notified immediately, but the damage had already been done. 
The criminals stole data ranging from names and contact information to health numbers and test results. It appears so far that financial information and social insurance numbers were not extracted. Uh, it sounds like uh, patient record systems were separated from uh, the, the systems that were affected, and, that, and that's a good practice. The crooks demanded payment for a return of the sensitive information. Metasys left with little option but to pay an undisclosed amount of money. Right now, the average ransom we're seeing amongst business victims is usually about a million and a half U.S. dollars. Metasys wouldn't do an on-camera interview, but in a statement says it is confident the situation has been resolved. Just 5% of its clients' data potentially compromised. I think it's a bit early to determine that. One of the things these ransom criminals started doing at the end of 2019 is instead of just locking up the data, um, they've also started stealing the data as another extortion attempt to go so even if you've got a backup, we're going to publish all this patient data if you don't pay. Security companies say the solution is upfront prevention. The cost? Far less than the cost of getting hit by cyber criminals. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Up next, the latest in the Smugglers In scandal. You cross the line when cash is involved. The evidence that shows an American allegedly profited by helping asylum seekers enter Canada illegally. Also ahead, the discontent that defined a decade. A look back at the biggest news in the 1970s for our 60th anniversary celebration. Still a little extra busy over here for southbound traffic at the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge after clearing a much earlier crash at the south end. Still slow on the approach from Mountain Highway. For 47 years, Kermac Collision and Auto Glass has provided unmatched superior customer service and satisfaction. With 18 lower mainland locations, there's a Kermac in your neighborhood. Visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Ironworkers Memorial Bridge. Global News has obtained court documents outlining intriguing new details on the case against Robert Boulay, the owner of a popular bed and breakfast on the U.S.-Canada border. The American owner is accused of breaking Canadian law, taking money to help illegal migrants cross the border. Ramina Dea has the exclusive details. I can wave at you, but I can't talk to you. Ah, okay. They have a gag order on me. Robert Boulay is under strict bail conditions imposed by a B.C. court. The 70-year-old American awaiting trial in Canada for 21 human smuggling-related charges. And they're alleging that you were taking cash, two to $700 U.S. Boulay is accused of helping seven illegal migrants from Afghanistan and Syria cross into Canada from his bed and breakfast, the Smuggler's Inn, which is in Blaine, Washington, steps away from the Canadian border. You know you just ran across the border, huh? Where are you from? I can't speak. According to court documents, Federal Crown says the migrants contacted Boulay by phone or text. He picked them up in Blaine or Seattle. Crown alleges Boulay charged the migrants cash, 200 to 700 U.S., from May 2018 to March 2019. On the edge of Boulay's property, on this side of the rocks, this is the U.S. Where I'm standing over here, 
This is Canada. Crown alleges Boulay was giving migrants directions on how to travel east on Zero Avenue to get them to a nearby gas station on the Canadian side. I find that hard to believe. Len Saunders, a U.S. immigration lawyer who's been friends with Boulay for 20 years, says the Canadian government is using the senior as a scapegoat. Who cares how he gets paid as an innkeeper? That's irrelevant. He has a service that he does at the border, and I don't think it's up to him to determine where his clients go after they spend the night at his inn. But Crown says the CBSA's investigation revealed Mr. Boulay operates a high-volume, highly profitable smuggling business. If this truly were a high-volume operation, CBSA would have more evidence than seven payments for seven people. Boulay's criminal trial halted for a constitutional challenge of Canada's laws. A B.C. Supreme Court judge is expected to rule on the application in four months, but it could take years before the case is resolved. It's not good. Not getting any younger. Romina Dea, Global News. Loved ones of a Langley woman who has been missing for three years are renewing their plea for information that could help find her. Christina Ward, who was just 20 at the time of her disappearance, was last seen in Surrey in September of 2017. Despite several tips over the years, RCMP have not been able to locate her. Christina's name has been added to the database of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We miss Christina very much. We want to have her come home so we can be a family again. If there's anybody out there that, that knows anything, even the smallest, smallest thing that you've seen or witnessed, just bring it forward and we'll take it from there. It's, it's kind of hard to accept that someone can just be here one minute and then just vanish without without a trace. Anyone with information about Ward is asked to contact Langley RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Still to come, Canadian families desperate for word of loved ones in Iran. Her piano confiscated, her parents missing. How relatives here are trying to get some answers. Also tonight, a new study shows the serious toll COVID-19 Healthcare heroes. 60 years of bringing you the stories that shape our history. 60 years of Global BC. In partnership with Connect Hearing, your hearing is important. Take care of it. Final clearing stages of a crash here in Burnaby, northbound on boundary at Parker in the left lane. Kermat Collision and Autoglass has been family run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Burnaby. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The fact is that everything he's saying so far is simply a lie. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to make sure. Tell you the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not I, first in your I, class. I, I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. He has, You'd you know, surprised. You, you picked be surprised. the Go wrong ahead, guy, the wrong Go night at the wrong time. Listen, you agreed with Here's Bernie the deal. Sanders. The first of three presidential debates between Donald Trump and Joe Biden already generating some fireworks over the future of health care and the Supreme Court. 
The debate moderated by Fox News' Chris Matthews, who chose as tonight's topics, both candidates' records, the Supreme Court, the coronavirus pandemic, the economy, race and violence in cities, and the integrity of the election. At one point, Biden even told President Trump to shut up. Much more coverage throughout the evening. Already has cost 10 million people their All right, moving along now. A Coquitlam woman says she is terrified for the health and safety of her brother and sister-in-law in Iran who have been arbitrarily detained. She says they've been thrown into an Iranian prison where there is a coronavirus outbreak and believes their faith is the reason they were imprisoned. Sarah McDonald shows us why. The music has suddenly stopped for a Tri-Cities family and their loved ones in Iran. This piano, once played masterfully by Sohaila Talabi Eskandari's niece, seized along with a bounty of valuable possessions by government officials as her brother and his wife were detained without warning last month. Even the family in Iran, right now they're scared that what happens to them if we talk about it, are they going to kill them? Still weeks later, their Coquitlam-based relatives are desperate for any information on their well-being and the reason for arrest in the first place, with no charges laid and no access to legal counsel, though they have little doubt as to why. As a Baha'i in Iran, you don't have even the basic rights of human. Their family follows the Baha'i faith, a religious minority in Iran often subject to unjust and arbitrary persecution, with hundreds executed and thousands detained, according to experts. The policy of the government of Iran is effectively to suffocate the Baha'i community, and it has a number of strategies to do this. Adding even more concern, COVID-19. In a country deep in the throes of a third wave and more than 25,000 deaths due to the pandemic, Talebi Eskandari's brother and sister-in-law are languishing in a notoriously unforgiving prison where the virus is spreading unchecked. That's the way they want to get rid of them by the virus. So they have nothing to explain. With their teenage niece and nephew, now in the care of their elderly grandmother, these longtime Canadian citizens are pleading for help from the international community, asking the federal government to step in and assist. In a dire situation, Iranian officials seem all too insistent on silencing. Sarah McDonald, Global News. In Health Matters tonight, the federal government has announced it's buying nearly 8 million rapid COVID tests. These rapid tests will aid in meeting the urgent demand from provinces and territories to test Canadians and reduce wait times for results, which is key to reducing the spread of the virus. Public Services and Procurement Minister Anita Anand announced the plan to buy roughly 7.9 million tests from U.S.-based Abbott Laboratories. The move comes as current testing is being strained by an increase in cases. The test, which still needs approval from Health Canada for distribution, can produce results from a nasal swab in as little as 13 minutes. Responding to a province-wide survey, B.C. nurses say the stress of their jobs has increased through the COVID-19 pandemic and it's taking a huge toll on their mental health. Linda Aylesworth reports. Being a healthcare provider, especially when you work on the front line, is a high-stress job. A survey of nearly 4,000 B.C. nurses last year left no doubt. One 
two nurses essentially uh, met the criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. One out of three nurses met the criteria for moderate to severe anxiety and depression. It does happen to do with the fact uh, the nature of the work, the hours of the work, the amount of overtime that people were uh, working. That was before the additional stressors brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. So earlier this year, a similar study was conducted by UBC and the BC Nurses Union. We actually found a 10% spike in uh, um, some of our mental health injury indicators. Indicators like severe depression. Pre-pandemic, it affected 31% of BC nurses. This year, 41%. As for emotional exhaustion, last year 56% struggled with it. This year, 61%. This is about 5,000 additional nurses in the province meeting the criteria for these mental health problems within the span of six months. Among the things they worry about? They were extremely fearful of contracting COVID themselves. Um, but more concerned about taking it home to their loved ones. It's an understandable fear, even though nurses are only 0.04% more likely to get COVID than the general public. So what's needed? We do need to look at mental health supports, not only for the public, but for our health care providers, especially nurses. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Up next, a look back at a decade of discontent. More than 40 policemen equipped with masks and waving billy sticks marched into Vancouver's English Bay. Why police were marching in riot gear in the 1970s. And coming up in sports, local wrestlers who refused to give up after COVID-19 dealt a body slam to their WWE careers. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. We woke up in the middle of the night and there were flames. Uh, we could see flames and we ran to the car and I was in my underwear. We left with nothing. I mean, just literally with nothing. A state of emergency declared for three northern California counties being ravaged by wildfires. The glass fire has destroyed more than 100 buildings, including homes, eight wineries, and part of the five-star Meadowood Napa Valley Luxury Resort. All 5,300 residents of the town of Calistoga were ordered to evacuate Monday afternoon. In all, the glass fire has caused about 70,000 people to flee. To the north, the Zog fire has ravaged more than 16,000 hectares and claimed at least three lives. Do you feel for the people down there? And, and mm -hmm. yes, we are going to see some of that wildfire smoke around uh, here as well. Let's check in with Christy for the latest on the weather pattern that will bring it our way. Thanks, Chris. Yes, not what they're dealing with down there for sure. It's just a bit of smoke, but we certainly are uh, have the potential of seeing some. Now, this image here, you can see some haze off in the distance. So parts of Vancouver Island seeing that and will likely see that again tomorrow and it could get a little bit worse. So here's a look at what we're expecting. The plume of smoke making its way up from California. You can see this is the thicker part of that plume. We're just seeing the haze so far. So it's not until that thicker uh, smoke starts to push in does it start to uh, really make 
make things smoky across our region. So Wednesday, tomorrow, all of the south coast still has the potential for haze. Vancouver Island, though, tomorrow afternoon, you have the potential for more significant smoke. I want you to remember there's a lot of uncertainty with this forecast. Models are really having a hard time depicting when or if it will push in. Now, for the lower mainland and the Sunshine Coast region, at this point, it looks like Wednesday night into Thursday morning would be the timeline for our region. And even when it pushes in, this is what it could look like. Not the wide spread swath that we saw the last time. Much more spotty. So the smoke may come and go depending on your location. That's the plan right now. But again, there's a lot of uncertainty with that. Now, I want you to remember, tomorrow we still have a lot of sunshine on the way. I talked about just haze, parts of Vancouver Island getting a bit of smoke. Thursday, we could see a little bit of cloud cover. And for the lower mainland, it's Thursday with that cloud cover that we could start to see some smoke according to the timeline right now. So it would be mixed in with that cloud cover. At least we still have sunshine for us tomorrow with just a bit of haze. So enjoy the sunshine tomorrow with the warmth away from the water. We're talking about mid to upper 20s. That's the case for the South Coast region. Near the water, though, we'll likely see just 20 degrees, and that will be the case tomorrow and into Friday, despite the little bit of a blip on Thursday with a bit more cloud cover. And uh, as I mentioned, the potential for smoke on Thursday as well. Here's a look at your central windows weather window. We are looking at Kai Bay in Comox, and I love that's a little bit cloud cover off in the distance there. I love the layers there. Thanks so much. Very cool. Thanks, Mm -hmm. Christy. All right, well, uh, it took until late September, but the Stanley Cup has been handed out, Squire. I know. It, I almost, I mean, you kind of forget that it's late September. I mean, yeah. normally, they'd be in the preseason right now. Yeah. That Stanley Cup would have been handed out in June. But a BC boy doesn't care if it got handed out in late September. He got to hoist the Stanley Cup last night. Prince George, British Columbia's John Cooper. After seven years running the Lightning, he finally gets his name on the grail. Also tonight, wild times back in the 1970s when riots weren't out of the ordinary, speaking of the Stanley Cup. All right, earlier on, I did mention that it was Chris Matthews doing the, moderating the debate. I've taken some heat for it. You haven't, though, have you? I meant Chris Wallace. Well, you got half of it right. That's pretty good. Thank you. In yeah, baseball, you got the Chris part right because he's familiar with that one. Yeah. Why? Stupid. <laughs> if in it's baseball, lying. if you could hit 500, you'd be a billionaire. <laughs> That's true. Really. So. But this ain't baseball. I know. Uh, right now, John Cooper is the king of Prince George. He coached Tampa Bay to the Stanley Cup last night. A remarkable accomplishment for a remarkable man. He was a great hockey player when he was young. He was a very good lacrosse player as well. And before he became a hockey coach, he was a lawyer working as a public defender in the States. Last night, the Lightning, who have been one of the best teams in hockey the last five years, finally reached their destiny of winning the Cup under Cooper. The Lightning have played 600 hockey with him in charge of the bench. After being upset in the first round last year, Tampa won it all this year without their captain, Steven Stamkos, playing five of the six games against Dallas. And it was nice to see former Canuck Luke Shen win his first Stanley Cup. The Lightning are his seventh NHL team. His brother, Braden Shen, won it last year with St. Louis. So no jealousy between those two brothers now. All right, baseball playoffs, Tropicana Field. Things are going well for Tampa. they got a great hockey team, good baseball team. Tom Brady's their quarterback in the football. And uh, they're playing the Blue Jays in game one of the best of three. Wild pitch starts the scoring, and you people are not social distancing. 
This is uh, Manuel Margot with the two-run homer in the seventh to give Tampa a 3-0 lead. Toronto got it to 3-1. Man on second. Randy Gritchuk's shot looks like it's going to get in and score, but that's a great catch by uh, Willie Adamez, and it's a 3-1 final for Tampa Bay. I don't get the Minnesota Twins. They have now lost 17 straight playoff games. It's not even the same group of players. They haven't won a playoff game since 2004. And today, in the ninth, Houston put three on them and won four to one, despite Houston being terrible on the road this year and Minnesota being great at home. Once the playoffs start, Minnesota apparently is not so great. Well, like a lot of people, the Singh brothers, our gift to the WWE, have had to work from home. But for that to happen, it means they're not doing what they normally do, which is wrestling and entertaining fans of the WWE, and the Singh Brothers is not their real name, all over the world. Jay has their story. Introducing first from Vancouver, British Columbia, Samir and Sunil, the Singh Brothers. Being a WWE superstar defines me. You know, and I don't know if that's one of those things that's going to haunt me when I'm 60 years old, but I realize how much of it's part of my psyche. It's who I am. And when I don't have control over not being able to perform or being creative, um, it's, it drives you nuts a little bit, right? Because you have, don't have that outlet anymore and you're just, you know, sitting and like envisioning going back. Here at home in Vancouver, this was the second to last live performance by the Singh Brothers. A couple nights later, they're in Buffalo, New York, when the pandemic officially hit. And with it, delivering a COVID belly-to-belly -belly suplex that's halted their WWE aspirations the last seven months and counting. It's the longest uh, vacation layoff we've been on, you know, since uh, we started our careers. And uh, to that point, though, you know, we're, we've been doing everything we can possibly do to stay ready. Come on, push! In the world of professional wrestling, having long periods of time off is rare. Three to four days off any given month is considered a vacation. These are guys who spent nearly 300 days on the road performing last year. Ring rust is a very real thing. That's why the brothers have been working out seven days a week for half a year now. Actually, Ric Flair said it the best once in an interview. Uh, time off is the wrestler's worst uh, enemy. And, uh, you know, to that point, though, you know, Harv and I, you know, to our credit, we've been uh, not, trying not to lose our legs, so to speak. Having the border closed may have halted their tag team championship dreams, but not their driver desire. They're hoping within a month or two to be back in action, earning their paychecks, doing what they do best. Beautiful. They hate the Bollywood boys and they just hate the Singh brothers and you feed off that, you love it, right? And then we're out there dancing in front of them and you know, that's, that's it's fun. You know, it's, it's fun to be loved to hate. But when that red light's on, you know, you can expect the Singh cam, the clap, and the uh, bale bale bale. <laughs> Some of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Foshik Pospil Soul, another nice guy from around here, taking on uh, Matteo Berrettini, the number seven seed at the French Open. Now, Pospil usually doesn't do well on the clay. In fact, he's never won a singles match at the French Open, and he didn't win today, although he did have this crazy shot. Despite not winning a point, the shot uh, should get points for style. Take another look. In the air. Over the, well, yeah, down by the feet. Anyway, he would lose this to Berrettini in straight sets. Now, Denis Shapovalov is the ninth seed. He was taking on Gilles Simon, 
Shapovalov, nice point here at the net. Won the first set, six to two. That feel in that, how low he gets on that volley, gets, finds the. This is second set action. Shapovalov would win this in four sets. Paint within the lines, Dennis. He did just that. He's on to round number two. And a member of the family here at Global, his father is part of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mm -hmm. Do tell, Sophie. Oh, Jordan Armstrong's dad, Grant Armstrong, is a scout for Tampa Bay. That's right. And will be sporting a Stanley Cup ring. It was so sweet when Jordan tweeted out, (laughs) so proud of my dad. We're proud of him, too. Yeah, congratulations. Well done. Bring that ring in, Jordan. (laughs) All right, let's check in with Andrew for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Ann? Thanks, Sophie. Tonight, reaction and coverage of the first U.S. presidential debate. Plus, for the third time this month, hazmat crews have been called out to Stanley Park to clean up mercury. This time, it was found in a washroom under Stanley Park Brewing. The business and surrounding areas were evacuated for the cleanup. We'll speak with officials about the investigation and what the public needs to know. Those stories and more tonight at 11. Sophie, Chris. All right. Thanks, Anne. All right, uh, you might think of disco when you think of the 1970s, but after this, you'll start thinking about discontent in the 1970s as we look back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Global BC's 60th anniversary in partnership with Connect Hearing, the number one physician referred hearing provider. Super 70s. We are celebrating Global BC's 60th anniversary decade by decade, taking a stroll down memory lane, looking back at all the big news stories and big news makers of the past decades. And when it comes to weather events, the 70s set the bar, particularly when it came to flooding. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with more on that. Christy? That's right. So for those that experience this flood, it's likely a day they'll never forget. We're looking at back at the devastating flood of 1972 in Kamloops. Now, signs for potential flooding started early in the season with a cold start to spring and near record snowpack. But the recipe for disaster was complete in late May when a sudden change in weather brought two weeks of extreme heat. The snow melted rapidly and despite desperate attempts to sandbag the region, the dike along the Thompson River failed on June 2nd. Now, a large swath of Kamloops, including more than 200 homes, were submerged. And the impact of the extreme spring thaw wasn't over. The first two weeks of June then brought not only heat, but heavy rains too. The flooding in Kamloops extended into the city centre, and small floods began popping up around the province, from Prince George to the Similkameen, Shushwab, Okanagan, right down to the Lower Fraser in Surrey. The total damage was $62 million in, in today's dollar. Thankfully, though, no lives were lost. And there's still now a monument that stands near the Thompson River in Kamloops showing the height of the water on that day. And I'll tell you, 
I've seen it personally. It's up to about chest height on me. That's about five feet. Uh, it's quite incredible, despite the, considering when it's up away from the river. So really, really high. Hard to conceive when you're standing yeah. next to it. There's no mm -hmm. doubt. All right. Thanks very much for that, Christy. And if the 60s were known as a time of change, then the 1970s were known as a decade of protest. There were riots in Gastown, a notorious riot and hostage taking at the B.C. Penitentiary. As Ted Trenecki shows us, it was a turbulent time to be a reporter. In Vancouver in the 1970s, life was a riot, and not in a fun way, unless your idea of fun was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the law. It would fight with police, and, and the idea of, of, of rioting and, and whatnot, just because I think the city was much more rough and tumble back then, just seemed to happen uh, at the drop of a hat. It was the infamous Gastown riot where many historians agree excessive force was used in cracking down on what had been, until police arrived, a peaceful pro-marijuana rally. 78 arrested, 38 charged. So when the Gastown riot happened, as much as we look back at it today as sort of a turning point incident, a lot of people were on the side of police at the time, saying that the city was, was full of undesirables and people that did nothing and contributed nothing and we should get rid of them. Um, that created a real sort of combative nature, uh, especially with the difference in ages. The Rolling Stones riot, where 31 officers were injured, 13 of them hospitalized. At the encouragement of the notorious Clark Park gang, 2,000 would-be concertgoers rioted after some of them were sold counterfeit tickets. But in the 1970s, it was disorganized crime. You know, the gangs were out on the street, you know. They weren't necessarily hiding out in the suburbs. and They were right here in town. Um, it wasn't, there wasn't necessarily the same violence as, and gun violence we see today. It was, you'd more likely see a guy with a bat or a chain than a gun. The 60s had the hippies, but the 70s had the yippies, an acronym for the Youth International Party. Their biggest splash came when about 500 anti-war protesters stormed across the border into Blaine, Washington, tearing down an American flag, breaking windows, and on the way back, throwing rocks at a passing freight train. About a hundred new cars and three trucks were damaged. A week earlier, four students at Kent University in Michigan were shot and killed during an anti-war protest. Security was tight surrounding the appearance in New Westminster Supreme Court of three of the five B.C. Penn inmates charged in... The inhumane B.C. Penitentiary in New Westminster had at least a half dozen riots in the 70s before finally being closed at the end of the decade. More than 40 policemen equipped with masks and waving billy sticks marched into Vancouver's English Bay shortly after midnight. Even so-called family events like Sea Festival couldn't escape the wrath that was the 70s. But the surge of riots started to wane after a more moderate Art Phillips replaced a controversial and confrontational Tom Campbell as Vancouver's 32nd mayor. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Well, we've had a couple of riots since then that can, you know, rival what we saw it's all, in the You 70s. know, it's, it's good perspective. It's all happened before. You might think that things are going mm -hmm. haywire, but really you study history and... Very often it has happened before. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow? A look at the politics of the 70s, including the end of the Bennett era. Hopefully you'll join us for that. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night.